0: So again, the season of Lent is all about that 40-day well, 47 days with the Sundays included that season before Easter uh, leading up to the Passion Week where we reflect on the meaning of what we refer to as the gospel. Uh, The gospel being the death and the burial, the resurrection, of course, the life of Jesus. And then the fact Paul said that after his resurrection, he was seen by many disciples so this week this is the third week of our series we're specifically reflecting on the death of Jesus the cross which is certainly a centerpiece I mean we have crosses on the wall we have crosses on the hillside I remember for uh, we have a a beautiful um, wall painting of a fresco really of the Lord's Supper Uh, that week the week of the passion of our Lord the week leading up to the death and the resurrection of Jesus that week consumes probably 30 to 35% of the Gospels. So here we're talking about the eternal word, the eternal Christ, the life of Jesus itself being 33 years here, the ministry of Jesus being three years. And yet, when we look at the Gospels, 35% of the Gospels are consumed in that one week, the Passion Week. So there's a lot there. Specifically today, we know that the cross is the centerpiece of our faith. Uh, I remember the first five years, or or the first rather two to three years we were in the building we didn't have crosses here and we got a lot of flack from folk in the church. How can you have a church without a a, a cross and I think that's actually possible but um, I I think it is a wonderful icon of our faith. What does the cross mean? What does the death of Jesus mean? Well I, I think first of all the death of a life can never really mean more than the life itself meant. I mean, when you reflect on great people and their death, um, in their death, as we're asking ourselves, what does this mean, we immediately go to uh, the life itself. I mean, if you're going to reflect on the death of Martin Luther King Jr., you have to reflect on his life. He died for what he lived for and he died how he lived. Uh, Great people do this. Um, I, I suppose all people do it. But Jesus was certainly no exception to this rule. The death of Jesus means exactly what the life of Jesus meant. He died for the things that he lived for. And I think at the heart of our faith, and I just want to run through a few things that I think um, the death of Jesus means to us, and all of these could, uh, could merit not just a sermon but a whole series. Um, I, I think the death of Jesus certainly underscores the solidarity of God with humanity. The fact that Jesus, that God in flesh as we have cast him, would experience a full human life to the nth degree. The writer of Hebrews tried to capture this when he said that Jesus was tempted, tested, tried in every way, just like we are. A human being who wrestled with the same issues His life was not so sterilized by his divinity that he didn't wrestle and struggle with the same things that we struggle with. When God came in the flesh of Jesus, I've said many times, I said a couple of weeks ago, I think the beauty of incarnational truth is not the exceptionalness, the exceptionality of Jesus. But I think the beauty of Jesus is that Jesus was the rule. When God came in the flesh of Jesus, the angels announced, call him Emmanuel for God is with us. And I don't think the intimation is that God has just showed up. I think the intimation is that God is and always has been with us. Jesus said, when you've seen me, he he never used our fancy theological language and said, when you've seen me, you've seen the eternal second person of the Trinity who's co-substantial, co-existent, co-eternal with the Father and the Holy Spirit. He never used that language. Jesus said, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. When you've seen me, you've seen God. When you've seen me, my life is a vista. It's a window that opens you. And if you want to know what God is like, look at me. This is what God is like. Jesus' life was the ultimate, you have heard it said, but I say unto you. And he said most of what he said with his life. If you read the Hebrew scriptures and wonder how God feels about children and outsiders, just watch the life of Jesus. The Sermon on the Mount is a profound sermon. He said a lot of great things, but the most profound thing that he did is release the children. Oh. Yes. That's the most profound thing Jesus did, was dismiss the children. The 4th and 5th graders, 6th through 12th graders, please get out of here. <laughs> that reminds me, Pine Bluff, Arkansas, one of my mentors, his name was M.J. Rutledge. His wife, we called her Pigeon. She was a hoot, and she was always sending him notes when he was preaching. You just send him notes, and somebody would go up there and hand him a note in the middle of his preaching. It's so... Aggravated him that one day he told her this true story. He said, Next time you send me a note, I'm going to read it to the whole congregation. So well, one day he was preaching away, and as he was preaching away, somebody took him a note from Pigeon and he opened it up and he just, without even stopping, he was so disgusted. He opened up and he said, Marvin, your pants are unzipped. <laughs> <laughs> so you got to be careful reading notes on the fly, no pun intended. Ooh, that was good, wasn't it? All right. Thank you. Thank you. I'll be here all week. Grace point. So, back to the serious subject matter, solidarity. Jesus said, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You want to know what God is like? You can read the Hebrew Scripture. And it seems like God's killing everybody and God's kind of running ISIL or ISIS, whichever side of the political fence you're on. God's running, you know, terrorism. Jesus sees hungry people and feeds them. He sees children, pulls them into his lap and says, don't hurt these. And if you've been confused about who the Father was, who the eternal God is, Jesus said, when you've seen me, you've seen him. Just tries to clear things up. So Jesus' life and death shows us the great solidarity of God with humanity. A solidarity that we should have understood without Jesus coming. I think we had every reason as human beings. And maybe ultimately that was what Jesus did. Jesus was this ultimate human who went inside, looked inside, and discovered the truth about all of us. Maybe that's why Paul said by the time this soul-making universe gets done with us, we will realize that Jesus is the firstborn among many brothers and sisters of the same essence, of the same parentage. Maybe that's why Jesus at judgment is capable of saying, as much as you've done it unto the least of these, you've done it unto me. Maybe he meant that more literally than we've ever assumed. So this ultimate sense of solidarity, I think about Hebrews 12 when I think about Jesus and solidarity. Hebrews 11 ends with this grotesque moving picture of martyrdom, talking about how people by, for the integrity of their own spirituality and their own faith were willing to die and that happens in the world, not much around here but it happens and it's happened for a long time and the writer reflects and said some for their integrity they were sawn asunder They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, literally, they would be tortured. They would be sewn up in animal skins and put out in the wilderness to be. uh, They were fed to lions. Stomachs were cut out, eviscerated, filled with corn and used as troughs for pigs. That's the writer's context. And then he opens Hebrews 12 and says, so let us then. I mean, we we haven't endured that kind of thing, but let us, let us look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, the author, the finisher of our faith, the ultimate archetype. Let us look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despised the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the Father wouldn't even go back into the throne just sits down at the right hand let us lay aside the weights and the sin that does so easily beset us and let us run with patience the race set before us and then this powerful next verse so let us consider him who endured such hostility from sinners lest we become weary and discouraged in our souls that's lovely let us consider him lest we become weary and discouraged in our souls so we look to Jesus and Jesus was this, some call him extremely enlightened, thus in touch with his divinity. Others of us have captured in him divinity another way. We have recognized him as the second person of the Godhead and we have given him, some have given him divinity metaphysically, some have given him divinity physically. I don't know that the difference is that great. But he came to show us not only who God was, but he came to show us who we are. And for whatever reason, this God-man was the first among us to have the capacity to look over the wall into the nether world, into the other world. He endured the cross and he despised the shame for the joy set before him. All of us are here in and out of pain suffering struggle friend a dear friend of mine lost his nineteen-year-old in a motorcycle accident last night some of you read his Facebook post where he said I don't even want to go to sleep because I'm afraid if I go to sleep it will prove that this day really has been when I wake up suffering and we wonder why we struggle with the why the question and Jesus comes along and has the capacity to look over that wall that is so high that we can't look over from the temporary end of the eternal. Jesus looks over the wall, and he sees something. And the beauty of Jesus is this is not God in an air-conditioned office on the backside of nowhere, a million miles from the battle line. This is God come down into the world. And God is not saying through Jesus, hey, believe me, from this side to yours, it's all going to be worth it. But from that side, God enters in Jesus. Our world suffers like few have ever suffered. And instead of telling us, believe me, trust me, it's all going to be worth it in the midst of our pain, he enters our pain and is led like a lamb to the slaughter and endures the cross and despises his shame for the joy set before him. So let us run then our race. There's solidarity, there's inspiration in Jesus. This coming into our world. When you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That's a huge piece for me of who Jesus was. And then time fails to talk about this ideal life, this life of virtue. We don't have enough time. We could never exhaust the virtue of Jesus, this life that we're called to, this life that we're called to model and to mirror and to live into. Paul said, I travail for you that Christ might be formed in you. To recognize the Christ in all of us, that thing that so many have called the Christ consciousness that exceeds that physical body of Jesus of Nazareth, that thing that Paul tapped into when he looked at the mystical, mythical body of Christ filled with the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead and he said, I'm travailing that Christ would be formed in you. Christ is not an ideal to be worshipped. Christ is your capacity to be lived into. I don't think Jesus came and by coming was creating something new as as, as much as he was revealing what had always been true. The Father had always been with us. Jesus said, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Call him Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus was not that fraction of God that had the capacity to be with people Colossians 2 said all the fullness of the Godhead had indwelt him bodily he was the express image of God when you've seen me Jesus said you've seen God this is where God has always been God in flesh that's why Jesus didn't stay incarnate the scripture says As a matter of fact, Scripture says that he was very committed to not staying incarnate. Peeling himself away from his disciples saying, I've got to leave. I've got to go back to the Father. See, we think about that economically, physically. I've got to go back to the Father. I think he's talking more about state of being than he's talking about economic transaction or physical movement. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father. And Jesus leaned in just before he was crucified and said, Philip, have I been so long time with you and you haven't known me? He that's seen me has seen the Father. It's the ultimate undercover boss. Jesus said, I must return to the Father. It's where I've always been and it's who I am. And they said, We don't want you to go. He said, But if I do go, you'll do greater works than what I'm doing here with you. Because you'll finally realize you're me and I'm you. You'll finally realize who you are. He never came to create a complex structure of deity for us to worship in complex forms. He came to empower us and he said, I've got to go away. As a matter of fact, he said, I've got to return to the Father who's greater than I. Where I come from is better than this. Localizing me in a flesh or an idol or a body is missing the point. Let go of me. And they said, we don't want to let go of you. We like God captured. We like a genie in a bottle. We like a doctrinal rubric to be worshipped and followed. Jesus said, but if I go away, the Father and I will come back and we'll make our abode with you. This is the Holy Spirit and the works that I've done greater works than these shall you do. That mythical, mysterious thing is why Paul finally looked at us one day and reflected and he said, you're the body of Christ. You are the flesh of God. In 1 Corinthians 11, when Paul upbraided the church and he said, you are not taking the Lord's Supper worthily. That's that scripture that scared all of us to death growing up in the evangelical world. You remember, you're not taking the... Lord's Supper worthily, and because of it, he said, you're dying. For us, the interpretation of that was, if you take the Lord's Supper and you got sin in your heart, God's going to kill you. Remember that? We literally took the Lord's Supper once a year, and people said, well, y'all must have not taken it seriously. Oh, no, we took it so seriously, we only did it once a year. We felt like the priest in the Old Testament. We put the bells around our feet, tied a rope around our ankle, and said, if we don't come out, drag our dead body and bury us. We stayed up till midnight, New Year's Eve, every year, searching our hearts for hours. Can't tell you what that feels like to an eight-year-old mind. And then at that foreboding moment, at that ominous moment, we would take the Lord's Supper, Steve, just hoping that we had cleared it all. Because Paul said, if you don't take the Lord's Supper worthily, Stephen, God will kill you. I read 1 Corinthians 11, years later, Paul said, when you take the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Supper was a bit more robust than it is for us now. It always was accompanied with the agape, or the love feast. Some churches still do this. It was a potluck. The first Eucharist was Jesus out of the Passover meal taking the remnants of a meal and feeding them. So the early church always had a meal. It wasn't a Passover meal. It was just a potluck. And out of that, they would take the remnants and they would distribute and they would take the Lord's Supper And Paul told the church, my God You've created a caste system Where the rich people bring really good food And the poor people don't have food to bring And the way you set the entire dinner up Is that the poor people who didn't bring food Don't get any And the rich people, Paul said Not only get some But they gorge themselves gluttonously And then they get drunk On the wine That's supposed to Show us the lifeblood of Jesus. And Paul was like, oh, God. And that's when he said, you haven't discerned the Lord's body. You've got these esoteric ideas about a physical embodiment on a celestial throne interceding with another person in the Godhead. And you've missed the incarnational truth of He drew the dust out of the earth, breathed into it his own breath, oxygenated it with the breath of God, stepped back and said in the image of God created he them, male and female created he them in the image of God. How did we tease that phrase, imago Dei, image of God, out from the life of Jesus? Paul said we shouldn't have. He said when you treat the poor in your church improperly, when there is a misdistribution of wealth, forget about the world. When there's a misdistribution of wealth in the pews of the church at the table of the Lord, do you not remember the table of the Lord wasn't concerned about fancy words like transubstantiation and consubstantiation and metaphorism? And it wasn't concerned about is it wine or grape juice, leavened or unleavened? The table of the Lord, he got in trouble because he always had poor people and marginalized people and drunks and sinners sitting with him. And the Pharisees said, Why don't you fence your table and have only clean, holy people at your table? That's the deal. And Paul said, my God, now at the table of the Lord, people in our church who don't get a square meal all week long, of all places they could think to get some equitable distribution of grace and food, it would be here. And Paul said, you're drunk and gluttonous on the food that could feed the hungry thus he said you have not discerned the Lord's body thus you are not taking the Lord's supper worthily you want to take the Lord's supper worthily get your head out of the clouds get your head out of doctrine out of the sky get into the incarnation of God the flesh of God for as much as you've done it unto these you've done it unto me Oh, can you tell I believe that isn't it beautiful? The older you get, the fewer things you believe, but the more you believe them. Because all of these tertiary, secondary, all of the drivel that we spent so much of our spiritual energy on, it doesn't matter. This is the stuff. What does the death of Jesus mean? Ultimate solidarity. My God, my God. Why would you forsake me? The ultimate solidarity of God with humanity. That God would experience the absence of God. No. Jesus could not experience the true absence of God. Jesus only experienced the felt absence of God. And oh, how I've been there. Those words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They were a quote of Psalm 22. It was when David was on the run from Saul. Long past was the smell of the perfumed oil that had flowed over his brow down onto his his shepherd garments. As Samuel said, you are the next king, but now he was on the run. His life was in the balance, and Saul, whom he loved dearly, was trying to kill him. And David from a cave one night that shepherd boy who knew the presence of God lifted his voice and said, My God, where are you? The Psalm 23 opens with a later psalm from his life. The Lord is my shepherd. He leads me beside still waters, into green pastures, restores my soul. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, Emmanuel, Thou art with me. And later the old man reflected and said, If I take wings and fly to the deepest ocean, if I go into the heavens, and if I go down to the hell that we've made, in the bowels of the place called hell, Thou art with me. You are inescapable. Jesus' life and death Was a picture of solidarity. Every father and mother who've ever lifted their voices at the loss of a 19 year old in a motorcycle accident. My God, my God, thou art with me. This is the death of Jesus. For many, many. Years, I believe the death of Jesus was that thing that allowed God to be near me. I was traditionally taught, as many of you were, and it has been to a great extent. Uh, the understanding of the church for the first two thousand years I'm grateful that I do not believe these are the end times I'm grateful that I believe that these are the earliest days of the Christian church for one day with the Lord's is a thousand years and I think we have a long way to go before we see the full image of Christ in humanity but we're getting there and in our first two thousand years in this infant toddler stage that we've been in we are growing out of a sin separation and sacrifice model of God. That model of God and humanity is deeply rooted anthropologically in humanity all the way back to the earliest days when we began to understand that there was another, there was an invisible world. In those early days, third and fourth millennia, the earliest records that we have of human beings wrestling with this invisible world this sense that there were beings in the beginning we really didn't understand that those beings were God in the beginning the earliest human sentiments about God as best we can tell historically and archaeologically was we believed that our loved ones went on into that other side and those who were good did good things for us and those who were bad sent lightning bolts at us that's why to this day your insurance policy on your home Calls things like tsunamis, tornadoes, hurricanes, and floods. What do they call them? Acts of. Our earliest sentiments toward the gods were that they were whimsical, capricious, and they were desperately angry the hebrew innovation the abrahamic innovation was not an innovation of monotheism there were others that were positing monotheism besides us i know we don't like to admit that but there were a lot of people talking monotheism before us that was not our innovation listen our innovation was that god was moral until then even circa Jesus, read about the Greek and the Roman pantheon. It was a soap opera in the sky. The gods were angry because the gods were borderline evil. They could not be trusted. They were dastardly to one another and they were dastardly to us. But the Hebrew people come along, the Abrahamic tradition came along and said, yes, the gods are angry, but they're not angry capriciously. They are angry justifiably. And the issue of morality entered. Ethics and morality began to be called into question. God is ethical, God is moral, and God is just. So we ought to be ethical, moral, and just. And the reason all of these bad things are happening is because we're not obviously ethical, moral, and just. And the Hebrew innovation said... Yes, the gods are angry, but they are justifiably angry. Yes, they are punishing us, but we deserve it. Yes, God is separated from us, but we deserve it. And out of that innovation grew this idea of sin and separation. But in the morality of God, one of God's chief virtues was love. And a subordinate of love is forgiveness and mercy and reconciliation so the idea of sacrifice began to develop. Sin, separation, but a moral God provides remediation. A moral God provides redemption. And sacrifice became our way. The Hebrew people joined the rest of the world, cultures in the second and third millennia that had no opportunity to cross-pollinate, but this was the consciousness that was bubbling up in humanity at the time. And humans begin, to, humans begin to call out a special elect among themselves. And they called them priests. And these priests were the professionals who could barter your deal with the gods. They were exceptionally holy people who could do for you what you could not do for yourself. This is one of the innovations of Christianity. You're a royal priesthood and you need no mediator. 1 John 3, you have no need that a man teach you. You have the spirit of God. Priest. Temples grew out initially of externalized natural altars. What were altars? Altars were not places where we cast all of our care. Altars were buffer zones. They were demilitarized zones between the north and the south. These safety militarized zones for this dangerous God could be approached. Buffers of rocks and buttes and outcroppings, rivers. We would come to one side, God would come to the other the priests, the professionals would lead us for a small phenomenal fee they would lead us some of them no doubt were sincere others of them were charlatans who captured the angst and the fears of people created more fear and then told them for a small fee they could remedy that for them and we were led to these altars and We felt in that demilitarized zone that there was safety. God would come to the other side and out of that grew the idea of sacrifice. This isn't indigenous only to us. Every world religion leading up to the Abrahamic religion realized that the gods were angry. Professionals led us to these safe places and we would cast our sacrifices in. And the idea of sacrifice was that somehow the gods could be appeased. That if we punished ourselves enough it's like a college athletic program knows that they have infractions knows the NCAA is coming but sanctions themselves hoping that if we before the feds get here before the NCAA gets here if we punish ourselves enough right and we gave our best our fear of the gods Our desperate need to appease them caused us to give our best and our best in the beginning was the best humans among us. In those centuries and millennia, millions of children were sacrificed. That's why Abraham did not count it strange when God said, okay, that boy I gave you, give him back. Put a knife through his chest. Abraham didn't say, my God, who are you? Abraham tacitly, broken-heartedly nodded as if to say same song, 19th verse, just like all the other gods. And he went up a hill, and the boy said, Dad, where's the sacrifice? And an old man's throat caught, as he whispered, God will provide. But as the hand went up above... An angel stayed the hand, an animal stirred in the bush, circa 1850 BCE, that's where we put Abraham, and anthropologically, it is proven that about that time, human beings begin to shift greatly from human sacrifice to animal sacrifice, and our consciousness grew. Question for you, in the story, did God tell Abraham to kill his son? Yes. Yes. In the story, did God want Abraham to kill his son? No. Why would God tell him to do something that God didn't want him to do? Pedagogy, teaching method, consciousness shift, making a point, kill your son. Don't kill your son. I don't need your son. A ram stirs in the bush, and for 800 years, even the Hebrew people sacrificed little sheep and goats, the best from our fields. And finally, David, a man after God's own heart, hundreds of years into that sacrificial system after he had had adultery with Uriah's wife and killed Uriah to cover it. Ghastly murder and adultery. Even took her into the palace. Benevolent, magnanimous, told the people, her husband is dead on the battlefield and I will take his pregnant wife into the home as my own. What a lie. Disgusting. And Nathan walks into his palace and says him you are the man you have transgressed and David's heart broke and he crawled into a cave at Machpelah where the patriarchs were buried disrobed of his purple his scepter thrown away his crown fallen off he crawled amongst the bat dung and said oh God cast me not away from your presence oh God remove not your Holy Spirit from me because that's what God does when you sin." God separates and as David wrestles with the separation of God he's buried three children already do his own sin and horrible fathering as he wrestles with the separation of God David comes to an innovative place no wonder he was a man after God's own heart it wasn't his adultery and murder it was his understanding precociously of the heart of God when at the end of that prayer he said, I realize now it is not the blood of bulls and goats you want, but it is a broken heart and a contrite spirit. Do you know how heretical it is, a thousand BCE, in the middle of the Mosaic Levitical system, for a man to say, you don't want the blood of bulls and goats, you want the human heart. And God looked at the angels, choked back a tear, and said the boy is ahead of his time. Question, when God told Abraham to kill his son, did he want him to? No. Did he need him to? No. Question, when God told Moses and the people, kill animals, did he tell them to? Yes. Did he want them to? No. Did he need them to? No. And is it any wonder that it was David who said, it is not blood that covers a multitude of sins, it is love that covers a multitude of sins. I no longer believe the death of Jesus is that thing in the economy of the universe that allows God to be with humans. But as a Christian at my core, I believe the very necessary, unnecessary but necessary death of Jesus was that final move of sacrifice that instead of turning to God and saying can you father be with them now which is a ridiculous idea because Jesus said when you've seen me you've seen the father I don't have to talk him into anything but in that reconciling moment of death I do not believe that Jesus was going to God to give God capacity but I believe that was the ultimate voice that came behind the fig leaves and the bushes where we hid and coaxed us out and said, can you believe me now? And that is why I tell you the story over and over again because I believe in the first 2,000 years we literally have developed a prescription for a prognosis that is due a diagnosis that is a miss. because the ultimate diagnosis in the first 2,000 years of the Christian church is that Adam and Eve sinned, God separated, and an entire system of sacrifice is the only way that gap will ever be remedied. And I'll close with those two stories again. In the beginning, God created them in the image of God, created He them. They were naked and not ashamed. Their perfection was not described as naked and not sinful. Their perfection was described as naked and not ashamed. Do you want a perfect human being? It's not the absence of sin, it's the absence of shame. You say, do you not think sin's a problem? Yes, but if you get shame taken care of, you'll be amazed how sin takes care of itself. But if all you do for 2,000 years is harp on sin, you'll be amazed about how much shame it will create. And then shame creates the vicious cycle right back into sin. And he walked with them and he talked with them in the cool of the day. God was with them. And the serpent slithered slithered into the garden and said, what did God tell you? She said, he told me not to even touch that tree. The serpent said, he's lying to you. He's lying to me. I thought he cared about me. He doesn't care about me. He's not the lover. I'm not the beloved. Then she saw that the fruit was good for food. She never saw the fruit that way till she saw herself this way and she never saw herself that way till she saw God that way. And when God was no longer the lover and she was no longer the beloved, she took the fruit, she ate the fruit. She saw it with her eyes, she picked it with her hands, she ate it with her mouth, she digested it with her belly. But when the shame localized, it went straight to her sexual parts, the most beautiful part of our life, that part that creates other human beings, that part that unites us with another human being. Her story is not the story of two people historically, it is the story of 10 billion people. It's the story of a little girl named Nina who gets on a school bus and a boy tells her she's fat and she comes home after five years of being naked and not ashamed and says, Daddy, am I fat? And now billboards and magazines begin to matter. That's the voice of the serpent, she is Eve. I take the story so seriously, I don't relegate it to two people, it's the story of all of us. Think about yourself, how much shame you carry in your body. Think about how much shame you carry in your sexuality. Thank God this church has gotten beyond this issue of the LGBT because that is not, it is not an issue of homosexuality, bisexuality, or heterosexuality, it's an issue of sexuality. And the issue of sexuality is an issue of our bodies, and the issue of our bodies is the issue of our humanity, and the issue of our humanity is the issue of our divinity. It's our story, folks. They covered their sexual parts, even with one another. They covered them with fig leaves, if the story was sin, separation, and sacrifice, then the Bible would have said that they went to the meeting place and said, please come down, God. We've sinned. And God would have said, I can't come down there because my holiness is defined as my incapacity to be with you and your brokenness. How did we ever set the premise of the definition of God's holiness. How did we ever define God's holiness as God's incapacity to be with us when God, when we need God most? Jesus said, if your child asks for a fish, would you give him a serpent? How much more does your heavenly Father love you? And yet we have defined God in God's perfection as God's perfection being the inability to be with us in our greatest hour of need. If it were sin separation and sacrifice, God would have said, "I can't come down. You are filthy, dirty, but I'll tell you what to do. Build a religion." Create sacrifices, get a priest, have an altar, and if you get the sacrifice right, I will be able to come near. That's a story of sin, separation, and sacrifice. But the story goes that when they heard God's footsteps, God still came in spite of their sin. And I always say he probably got there 30 minutes early. God came and said, where are you? And they, from behind the bushes, heard something in the voice that they didn't hear in the feet because the feet caused them to hide, but the voice caused them to look out. Where are you, son? Where are you, daughter? We're hiding. Why are you hiding? We've sinned. Who told you that you were naked? God." by His love, coaxed them out in God's perfection. God's holiness was not God's inability to be with them, God's holiness was His absolute refusal to be away from them, and God coaxed them out. There was no sacrifice that allowed God to be with humanity because love covers a multitude of sin. And as God covered them, The Bible said he uncovered them, all the ways we cover ourselves, addiction and isolation, brokenness and sin, oh, the fig leaves that deteriorate with the passing of time that we try to cover our shame with, our machismo as men, our femininity femininity and sexuality as women, oh, the ways, the money we make, the cars we drive, oh, the fig leaves in our life that cover our shame. And God uncovers them. And in that moment, God saw that they were naked and ashamed. They were not naked and sinful. They were naked and ashamed. Naked and unashamed, naked and ashamed. And when God looked at their nakedness, God did not flinch and say, My God, put something on The Bible said as they blushed and hid, God killed an animal. God made an animal skin. And God made the first biblical act of covering or propitiation. And the act of propitiation and covering, I want to ask you the question, when the animal died, the skin was put on Adam and Eve. Was that sacrifice made to assuage God's wrath? Was that sacrifice made to cover their sins so God could be with them? Or was that sacrifice made to cover their shame so that they would unblush and come back to the presence of God? We've read, I don't normally say it this strong, but we've read the story wrong. We've read it wrong. And I don't normally say it like that. I try to be conciliatory but if you get the diagnosis wrong then the prognosis is going to be wrong and an entire prescriptive remedy plan will be built that is wrong. And what happens when the, prog- when the diagnosis, prognosis and prescription actually creates the true illness because I cannot tell you how much shame I have carried in my life because I bought hook, line and sinker that if you sin, God can't be with you. And when you're really broken, God is disgusted with you. Oh, the shame. So the very thing that we called gospel was the creator of our ultimate problem, shame. The last story that I tell is a boy that was born in union with the father. Could not do one thing to deserve that union, but in that union did not experience separation, but experienced estrangement. You can experience estrangement and alienation under the same roof. In that room, in that house, not sensing the belovedness that was his, that boy looked at a father and said, I don't want to be here. I want to separate from you. It's never God that separates from us. It is us that separates from God. And out of his shame, out of his lack of worth, out of his separation from his identity, he takes a long journey into the far country. And in the far country, deep in sin, yes, sin is real, deep in sin, he looks up and says, my God, what am I doing here? I am a son. I have a father. I want to go home. And as he turns his face toward home, bedraggled, broken, Haggard, road weary, road hard and put up wet, sinful, stinking. As he goes home, he falls into the fallenness of humanity, which is not sin primarily, it is first shame. That one who was naked and not ashamed, out of his shame grew deep into sin, and out of that sin grew deeper into shame. And all the way home, he says to himself, I know what's going to happen. I'm going to get there. And I'm going to knock on the door, and he's going to crack the door, and the chain's still going to be on. He's going to look through, and he's going to say, what are you doing here? You got your money. Get off of my porch. At best, he's going to say, you still got the money I gave you? Put it back in the kitty. I'll take you back in. And he says, but I'm going to put my foot in that door, and I'm going to say, give me 10 seconds. I just want to tell you I know I don't deserve to be called a son. I know I will never be your child again. Just make me a slave. That's all I want. Make me a slave. I'm not worthy. Just put me with the hired hands. And the Bible said as he was rehearsing that in his mind I'm not worthy. Sounds like a lot of the praise songs that we sing today. I'm not worthy. I'm not good. The only way I can tell you how great you are God is to tell you how bad I am. Somehow God gets excited as we admit to him how pitiful and broken these children are that are created in his image and we explain to him why he should not love us why he should have never loved us and how bad we are I will tell him I'm not worthy I'm a slave just please and he heard something and down the road came an old man and the son like a beaten dog flinched and as he waited the rod of that father to come down on him all he felt was the soft wrinkled skin of that old man fall across him If it were sin separation and sacrifice the father would have stood on the porch and said if you make it all back pay me back sacrifice an animal, do something. If you make reparations, you can get on my property. Until then, security, keep him off. That's sin, separation, and sacrifice. But shame, alienation, and estrangement, and healing is an old man running down a road who says, you don't have to clean up. You stink to the world, but you're like perfume to me. Because love covers a multitude of sins not blood nobody had to cut their finger off nobody had to die oh but something did have to die because when the father fell on him and covered his sin the son pressed into what is our core fallenness the son looked up and said I am not worthy of this take your arms off of me do not love me like this Oh, William Blake was right. We are put here on earth a little while to learn to endure the beams of love. That's the reason that us poor kids down in Paragol, Arkansas, we learned it well. That's why when somebody would tell my little sister that's a pretty dress, she'd say, oh no, mama just bought this at a roomage sale. That's why when they'd say, you're a good ball player, well, I'm really not. When they'd say, Sherilyn, you sure are a pretty little girl, she said, no, I, I'm really not. I, I think I'm too big, I just... I'm not worthy. We were put here on earth a little while to learn to endure the beams of love and I'm afraid what we have called gospel has been the worst news of all. We have told people they are so awful but God might love them, could love them if they get the sacrifice right. But the Father didn't say, bring your sacrifice, make your reparation because it's not sacrifice that covers a multitude of sins. It's the love of a father, a mother. And fallenness is the son saying, I'm not worthy, take your arms off of me. Did somebody have to die? Yes. Because as the father heard him sing the third verse of that praise song of how I am not worthy, you should not be doing this. I do not deserve this. The father hollered, quickly! Get a ring and a robe and kill a fatted calf. And I ask you, did the animal have to die? so the father could be with the son or did the animal have to die so the son could be with the father I am not leaving Christianity I'm just telling you I almost left it for years I said that Jesus saved God for me because all I knew was the Old Testament God and Jesus saved God for me but what we have done to people with sin separation and sacrifice the way we have hurt their souls and brought shame almost caused me to let go of this whole deal but like martin luther king before he threw the bible through the wall as he read the slavery text somewhere god caught me and said read it again and my god i read it again and the story tells a different story and it's in our book and i am thankful that Jesus had to die and I am horrified that he had to die. But Jesus did not go into the heavenlies and coax God down to man. Jesus went behind the shrubs and the trees of our shame and he has wooed us with nail-scarred hands. And the Father has said, can you believe me now? This is good news. Good news. (laughs) Oh, I got to take an offering now. I'm not crying because I'm sad. This is like going far enough east to get west. I'm crying because I am so hilariously thrilled. It's like you're so happy you can't do anything but cry, and you cry so long you start laughing. What a gospel this is. What a God we serve. What a full and rich meaning the cross has. Sorry I took so long, but I'm really not, because I wanted to get that said. That needed to be said. Oh, We're going to sing some songs, and none of them are going to talk about how bad we are. (laughs) Wouldn't it be something if one day your children stood up and said, I want to explain to you how great my parents are. I stink. I'm awful. And they should have never had me. Won't you stand there beaming and proud as they describe what a great parent you are to love a louse like them. Jesus said, just remember the way you love your children. How much more does our heavenly mother, our heavenly father love us? I did say mother, God cure us of gender inclusive language or exclusive language because God is not male or female. That's a message for another time. I don't wanna mess this one up. (laughs) Let's pray, Lord, thank you for our people for this great day and thank you for a gospel. Help our church to not just survive but to thrive. Touch our finances. You know this has been a hard year. And Lord, I know I'm actually just praying to the people because you are in them. We're the ones that have to give. Bless us as we give and keep this beautiful thing alive. And oh God, help us. Because this church needs to be full four times a weekend with people living in shame who need to hear the real gospel. Help this church grow, Lord. Help this gospel be heard. We pray it in Christ's name. God's people said amen.